Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay Podcast. This week, we are going to be looking at Killers of the Flower Moon by Eric Roth and Martin Scorsese. We're going to be talking about the art of adaptation. How do you take a book or a true life story, or in this case, both, and adapt it into a feature film or a TV series? We're going to be talking about those really hard decisions, the decisions we have to make that's called your take on the movie, because when you're adapting material, whether it's a dream, an idea, a poem, a song, a show, a board game, a haunted house, a piece of IP, a novel, a play, regardless of what you are adapting, it's not just a process of taking what is and translating it onto the screen. It's actually an art of saying, what pieces of this am I going to hold on to? What decisions am I going to make around it? You cannot adapt the whole thing. So you have to look at a part really closely. And that leads to thousands of decisions, which all taken together is called your take on the material. So let's say you're Martin Scorsese and you find a book like Killers of the Flower Moon by Jeff Gran, and you're like, I want to adapt this. Or let's say you are being called in for a meeting with a producer who wants you to adapt something for them. They're not looking for you to go, oh, okay, this is the book and this is what we're going to make. They're looking for your take. They're looking for the you in it. How are you going to approach it and what decisions are you going to make? And sometimes that means making really bold choices, sometimes even choices that depart in some way from areas of the source material so that you can look at the aspects of the source material that matter to you more deeply. And of course, this is what Martin Scorsese has done in Killers of the Flower Moon. Jeff Grant's book is primarily told as a whodunit. And this is the obvious take on this material. To give you a little background, if you have not yet seen the film, and uh, eventually there are going to be spoilers, but I want to kind of bring you into this world without ruining a lot of it, right? So you'll learn all this at the very beginning. You have this tribe of Native Americans. They are, like most Native Americans were, driven off of their land to the crappiest possible place that anyone could find for them, right? A land where nothing could grow. And then it seems fate intervenes. Oil is found on their land. And if you've seen the beginning of Killers of the Flower Moon, right, we, we start with a ceremony of mourning. And then we see this explosion of oil out of the ground and these native men being covered in oil. And it almost feels like blood is covering them, right? It's a premonition. It's a, it's a Martin Scorsese movie. We know it's going to get dark, but they are dancing in celebration of the oil. And then we are told, and this is true, the Osage people became at their time the richest people per capita in the world. So this is the world we're entering. And what actually ends up happening? First, of course, 
the whites decide that many of these natives are incompetent to manage their own money, right, and put them into a system where they need a guardian, of course, usually a white man, to actually allocate their money, right? Putting them into a position where they're not in control of their own finances and where they can be further exploited because of that. But then on top of that, a weird thing starts to happen. The Osage start to die. Some die by what seems like suicide. Some die by what seems like a strange, unnamed wasting illness. Some die in explosions, but all told about 60 people die. And David Grant's book is told from the perspective of the character played by Jesse Plemons, Tom White, who is part of a new Bureau of Investigation that is eventually going to become the FBI. And in the book, he is putting together the pieces to solve the crime, right? It's a giant whodunit. And that's a pretty sexy idea. A giant whodunit, a giant historical true life whodunit. Why are these rich people dying? Why are these rich Native Americans dying? Who is responsible? It's a really brilliant hook. And actually, in early drafts of the movie, this was the hook that Martin Scorsese and Eric Roth and Leonardo DiCaprio were actually developing. In fact, originally, Leo was supposed to play Jesse Plemons' role. He was supposed to be the FBI agent putting together the pieces. And I think it's so interesting and so valuable to realize that even the greatest of the greatest of the greatest of the great still have to go through the same crazy development process that you do. It's not a linear street. It's a it's a journey of discovery. So they think they're making one thing and they're doing what they think is a really clear take on this material, right? Which is we're really going to focus on the whodunit and that's sexy and it's a clear genre, right? And it's exciting. And we're going to tell this untold story of this horror. And then at some point, Martin Scorsese realizes we're only telling the story of the white guys. We're not telling the story that needs to be told. And he changes his take on the material. He does a complete rewrite together with Eric Roth. They do a complete rewrite. They change Leo's role. Leonardo DiCaprio goes from playing the Jesse Plemons character, Tom White, to playing Ernest Burkhart, to playing a completely different role that we'll talk more about later. And Martin Scorsese decides to build the movie not around the whodunit, not around the obvious hook, not around the obvious take, but around a really messed up relationship. And now there are going to be some spoilers ahead. He decides to build it around a really messed up relationship between a man who claims to love his wife, who believes he loves his wife, who is responsible one by one of murdering every member of her family. And in the film, even for poisoning her. 
a man who can do all of these things and still say, I love my wife and still believe I love my wife. That's what Martin Scorsese decides to develop it around. And of course, his wife is a native Osage woman played by Lily Gladstone, Molly Burkhart. And she has been deemed, like many of the Osage, incompetent, right? She can't manage her own affairs. And she is in love with her husband. In fact, she even stands by him in the weight of all these accusations until he actually confesses to what he's done. And that's true. During his research, uh, Scorsese interviewed one of the grandchildren. And this whole take comes out of a surprising revelation that happened when the grandchild uh, said to Martin Scorsese, you need to understand, and I'm paraphrasing here, Ernest Burkhart loved my grandmother. Ernest loved Molly and Molly loved Ernest. And that became the take. The take became, how can someone who believes they love somebody do such horrible things for greed and money? Right? And this is a familiar Martin Scorsese trope, right? This is a familiar Martin Scorsese question. Like Martin Scorsese has spent a career forcing you to look at evil, right? Forcing you to look at the kind of evil that you don't want to believe exists, right? Forcing you to look at the kind of evil that you want to say, no, 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 it's not like that, right? Uh, and that's what this movie is doing. This movie is saying, here, look at this. And in pursuit of that, Scorsese makes some really interesting choices. And Eric Roth makes some really interesting choices, right? The first is he plays his hand of the whodunit at the very beginning. We, we are watching these images of celebration, right? We're watching these uh, images that look like stock footage from the time of these incredibly wealthy Osage people. And it feels like a celebration, right? It feels like those men dancing in the field being sprayed with oil. It's like, how is this possible? How did I not know about this? How did this heaven exist? And then, bang, we get these smash cuts to these dead Osage. Right? To these bodies, right? And, and at first we don't necessarily know what's happening, but then we actually see a woman killed by a white man and then the gun put in our own hand and we're told death by suicide. So we get never investigated, never investigated, death by suicide. And suddenly we realize, oh, white men are killing these people. Right? The hand is played right at the beginning. And the story continues. Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Ernest Burkhart, shows up in town. He's back from the war. He meets uh, William Hale, the Robert De Niro character, the king. And he's asked a couple questions. Do you like women? Do you like Osage women? 
why don't you take a job driving? And then completely spelling it all out, he meets Molly driving her and bang, we're told exactly what's going to happen. Hey, why don't you marry her so that the money starts to flow in the right direction? And suddenly we know. Oh, William Hale is some kind of mastermind who's marrying off Osage women and white men, who's positioned himself as a guardian, as a caretaker, as a supporter of the Osage, as a part of their community, but who is secretly undermining them because he wants the head rights. He wants the money, right? And the money cannot be passed except through inheritance. So he's inviting Ernest to marry. And Ernest does exactly what he says. He seduces Molly and they connect. And he really falls in love with Molly, even though he's doing it for some selfish reasons. Because as he says, he really loves money. So we're in this really crazy world where we already know what's happening. And then it gets even clearer, right? It's the opposite of Chinatown, right? It's the opposite of the traditional noir whodunit where you're trying to figure out who's on what side and what's really happening. And you as the audience have the entertainment of piecing it together. No, William Hale starts telling Ernest to kill people. And Ernest starts doing it. And we start watching it. For three and a half hours, we watch exactly what we're told is going to happen, happen with very few surprises. In fact, we don't even get the usual obstacles that most movies are built around, right? If our main character is the anti-hero, right? This is not Walter White dealing with every kind of horrific obstacle, right? Constantly, constantly feeling like his life is at risk. No, nearly everything. Sure, there are some things that go wrong, right? A bullet to the back of the head when it should have been to the front, right? There are couple things that go wrong, right? A, a little scheme to make a little insurance money that goes wrong and ends up costing them one of the criminals who's going to pull off a crime for them. Sure, things go wrong, but it's not the traditional genre stuff, right? For the most part, things go right for Leo and things go right for William Hale. For the most part, their plan works for three and a half hours. And while visually stunning, you can see that Martin Scorsese is, is actually sacrificing, and Eric Roth is actually sacrificing some of the traditional drama and excitement in order to focus your eye on one really specific thing. This is what's so important about your take. When you know what you're building, you're going to have to make hard choices in order to build it. You're going to have to make choices that some people question. You're going to have to make choices that some people disagree with. You're going to have to make choices that sometimes depart from the traditional rules of how to make a movie, right? Every tool that you have as a screenwriter 
is only valuable in relation to what you are building, right? This is not a formula. And I'm sure any coverage reader would likely say, reading the script, hey, why not make this a whodunit? That would be so much more entertaining for the audience, right? And someone who's read the book, of course, would say, hey, why not make it more like a book? That worked, and it was a really wonderful whodunit. But that's not what Martin Scorsese is interested in. Martin Scorsese is interested in the love story. Martin Scorsese is interested in taking the audience and stripping away all the entertainment value, all the secondary structure of you going, maybe it was him, maybe it was him, and forcing you instead to stare evil in the face, murder after murder after murder. Martin Scorsese and Eric Roth are interested in pushing the relationship, building the love story building those moments of actual connection and tenderness and love so that you can see what it is, right? Allowing you to fall in love with Molly the way Ernest has, and probably even more. So you can stare evil at the face and go, but he couldn't. But how could he? But really? But even that? Even that? And for what? For money to please your uncle? In a way, the movie's built a little bit more like Fargo than like Chinatown. It is built to make you stare this evil in the face. And even the length, the slowness, even the predictability of it heightens that hook. Because every time Ernest kills somebody else, or hires somebody else to kill somebody else to be more accurate. You think, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And by structuring the movie this way, Martin Scorsese and Eric Roth force you to look at the enormity of the betrayal of the Osage people and of the Native Americans in this country in general. He forces you to stare that evil, that betrayal in the face. He uses this little piece to tell the story of the whole, right? This little piece of a people, some who trusted, some who distrusted, but all who found themselves without a choice, who are betrayed and then betrayed and then betrayed and then betrayed, and then betrayed again. Through all of this, they build the through line of the relationship. And one of the ways that they do this so effectively is through a piece of fiction. In the book, as far as we know, maybe there's some research they have that I'm not aware of, but in the book, as far as we know, it is not Ernest who is poisoning his wife. In the book, it is the doctors who are poisoning Molly for her insulin medicine. So uh, if you haven't seen the movie, uh, Molly, like many of the Osage, is diabetic because of the sugar that's come in from the new culture. Insulin is still very rare. And William Hale, playing the role of the savior, has come in to say, hey, 
I'm going to help you. I've got you this thing that nobody else can give you, that nobody else is going to save your life. And Molly already doesn't trust William. She doesn't trust the doctors. But she trusts her husband. And he loves her. And he is desperate to save her life, begging her to take the insulin. And she does. And he is the one who injects her until there's a moment where William Hale says, now you're going to add this a little bit. He doesn't tell him what it is. And this grows structurally out of another fictional addition. In the real story, the Bureau of Investigation gets involved without Molly ever going to Washington, although um, the Osage did reach out to Washington for help. Molly was not a part of that. Part of this is just good screenwriting. You have a challenge. You have a Native American lead who you have much less history about that you have to build around. And she's primarily victimized. She primarily does not have control over her own life. And you need to feel like she is moving her own story forward, right? You need to turn her into an active character. And one of the ways you can do that, and I want to be clear, whenever you're telling a historical piece or a true piece, you have to be able to look yourself in the eye and go, I believe in what I'm writing. But sometimes it's our job to use fiction to tell the truth. In this case, Molly has an internal desire to save her family, to save her people. And that gets externalized into an external action that's rooted in the real action, but is actual fiction, where she, even on her deathbed, goes to Washington to beg for help. And that turns into the catalyst that brings Jesse Plemons' character and the Bureau of Investigation to solve these murders, right? It's fiction, but it's an externalization of a true feeling used to take an internal problem and turn it into an external one. It's also used structurally to put pressure on William Hale and to put pressure on Ernest. It's used to help force another fiction, which is also an externalization of the truth. Internally, right? Emotionally, metaphorically, Ernest Burkhart is poisoning Molly. He is poisoning her family. He is poisoning her community. He is literal poison. In the real story, he didn't administer the shots even as he killed off everybody she loved. In this story, that metaphorical thing is translated into action. And it's done again so that we can see the enormity of the betrayal. So William Hale gives Ernest a little bit of poison through the doctors. We don't know it's poison. He doesn't know it's poison. He just knows it's a vial. And Ernest is told, just mix a little bit of this in with her insulin. Make sure you get the proportions right. It'll calm her down. There's a very interesting choice made with Ernest's character. Ernest is not very bright. Ernest is greedy. Ernest is selfish. Ernest has charm. But Ernest is not very bright. 
and he wants to believe his uncle even though he kind of knows. But there's a problem, right? They can't have her going around and getting the Bureau of Investigation involved. They can't have her going to Washington and messing up all their plans, right? All this money is supposed to flow to Ernest because every time one of these people dies, the money flows to Molly. And Molly is sick. And when Molly dies, the money's going to go to Ernest, right? So there's this giant funnel, right? And we cannot have Molly stirring up the pot. It'll calm her down. So he tells himself a lie that he kind of knows is a lie and kind of wants to believe is the truth. He's dumb enough that we're not sure how much he believes. And he mixes in the poison and he starts to poison her. And she starts to get sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker. And she is trusting him and he is poisoning her. And this is, of course, just another extension of that metaphor. You're going to look evil in the face. You're going to look at this man who believes he loves this woman. And you're going to watch him poison her. And just in case that doesn't do it, here's another fictionalized scene to push you even further towards the take. Here's another fictionalized scene. Ernest starts to suspect that she's dying because of him. And he mixes the poison, he mixes half of the container into his own whiskey and drinks it. And he is so sick. And he is lying sick, slumped in this chair. And he is still sick. And we think for a moment, now he's going to stop now he knows what it feels like. Now he knows without a doubt. Now even the lie he's telling himself that he's always suspected was a lie. Now even that lie is busted. And then we watch him still in that state of being sick inject her once again with the poison. Martin Scorsese and Eric Roth are forcing you to look evil in the eye. They are not staying 100% true to the literal facts of the case. They are not staying true to the structure of the piece. Instead, what they're doing is they're taking this one element out and they're building around that as much as they can and then they're deepening around that, pushing those elements even further. Now, is this the right way to tell a story? That's a question that none of us can answer. Whenever you are adapting, there are always going to be internal truths that you need to externalize because so much of what happens in real life happens in our heads. And also because so much of what happens in real life happens over so much time that we need to create fictional scenes in order for the truth to become clear. So when you have a take on a piece, you also have to think about what am I saying and what do I believe? Am I telling a lie or am I telling an emotional truth? Your storytelling is going to become the history that people believe. When people think about what happened to the Osage, they are not going to be thinking about all the articles that were written. They're probably not even going to be thinking about David Grant's book. They're going to be thinking about Killers of the Flower Moon. So you have to think about that when you're writing your script. Are the fictional choices you're making delivering something so valuable that tells the story in a more true way, or are they just fiction? 
And if they are just fiction, you have to really ask yourself, am I going to be able to look at myself in the mirror? But if they are allowing yourself to tell the truth in a truer way, then they just might be serving you. In this case, Martin Scorsese and Eric Roth keep going. There is a huge explosion. Um, two people are killed, this time a white man and his native wife, right? They're both killed in this huge explosion. And up until this moment, we've really been seeing William Hale as the bad guy, right? It's one, it's a bad apple, right? In a pretty nice community. Nobody else knows what's happening. Yeah, we've got some men, white men who are clearly marrying Osage women for the money, but they don't know what's happening. It's all William Hale. And then this huge explosion happens. Ernest arranges for yet another one of Molly's sisters and her white husband to be killed again so that the money will flow back towards Molly and through Molly to him. And there's a moment where another white man looks at William Hale and says, you're announcing yourself too much, William. And that's the moment where you realize that the evil that you think you've been looking at is not even the full evil. That's the moment where you realize that it is so much worse. That it's not just William Hale and a couple corrupt doctors. When you realize that everybody knows. So we have this structure, right? We have this length, right? The movie's too long. You don't get away with that. But even Martin Scorsese, it's got to be that long for a reason. It is built this way to force you to keep looking evil in the eye. You are deprived of the things that allow you to distance by having a good time, by trying to solve the puzzle in your head. All that's stripped away from you. You don't get to have a good time watching this movie. Instead, you're going to watch something that's evil, that gets eviler, that gets eviler, that gets eviler, that gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. By the time the movie is over, Ernest is going to be standing in a room filled with white people, all of whom know what really happened, all of whom are saying, don't do this, don't do this. Don't send your poor uncle to prison for the rest of his life. He can protect you. Don't do this. And you start to realize it's even worse than you thought. And we watch Ernest, and this is true, we watch him flip back and forth and back and forth. Now, as far as we know from the book, that real meeting with all those white people didn't necessarily happen. It is true that William Hale's lawyer... Um, right when Ernest was going to testify, did claim to represent Ernest and did flip him. But that scene with all those white people gathered around, that scene is invented, right? But you see that it is invented not to tell a fiction, but to tell a truth. A truth that is in the book, which is that this was not just one bad guy, one bad apple that that's actually the red herring. Thinking that this is just Robert De Niro's character, William Hale, right? It's not just the king. It is all the subjects as well. 
It is all these people who seem to be living at peace with this other, with this other group who all know what's actually going on. Another move that was done to keep things complicated, if we just kind of drop back a bit. Remember, this story is told through the love story, right? When you find your hook, when you find your take, you got to follow it, right? So we need to build out this love story. How do you do it, right? So we, we've been watching William poison his wife. And then there is a moment where William Hale tells Ernest, this is before he's turned state's witness, this is before the trial, where William Hale tells Ernest, you need to sign this. And he gives him a contract. And that contract basically says, Ernest, if you die, the money flows to me. And Ernest doesn't want to sign it. He's afraid to sign it because he's seen his uncle kill white men, kill Osage. His uncle tells him Byron signed it, but it's really clear Byron, his brother, did not sign one. It's really clear his uncle's lying. And Ernest knows he is signing his death warrant. And he signs it. And this is such an interesting move. And I don't know if this is true or not, but this is such an interesting move structurally in the piece. Because do you see how that complicates this love story? It forces you to look at the banality, the stupidity of evil. In a way, this guy is just a follower. He's going to sign his own death warrant in the same way he's going to sign hers, right? Because he just can't stand up for what's right. Because he just can't stand up to something that is so obviously wrong, even if it's suicide. Because his trust is in all the wrong places. And because he doesn't know how to love anybody. Not even himself. You see how this complicates the story. Similarly, there's a scene created in prison. The scene is not in the book. It does not exist. It's not real. But we have a story about a man pulled between two different sides, right? He was going to testify against his uncle. Because his uncle's going to kill him. Because it's the only way to save himself because he's been trapped by a cop who's smarter than he is. By a Bureau of Investigation agent played by Jesse Plemons who's smarter than he is. Who's also manipulating him. And now he has flipped and he is going to defend his uncle. He's going to say everything he said was a lie. And he is in prison with his uncle in cages right across each, from each other. And he's going to have to process the fact that his child has died. That's true. But out of that, there's going to become, there's going to be this final confrontation between the two in prison. That's going to ultimately lead to Ernest flipping again, which is true, he did. 
But that confrontation didn't happen. That is an externalization of the internal problem, right? Of the complication of, can I believe this man? Does this man care about me? Does this man love me? Of, I am being manipulated by both sides, which by the way, he is. Williams told him and keeps telling him, you can't trust the bureau guys. They are going to throw you in jail just like they did to me. You can't trust them. They're manipulating you. And guess what? He's right. Actually, even after Ernest flips, they are going to put him in jail. Everybody is manipulating him because he does not have the ability to do what is right. Right? He does not have the backbone to do what is right. And everything culminates Molly has still stood by him through all of this until in court he confesses to murdering everybody she's ever loved. And another fictional scene is constructed, right, that grows out of all of this fiction around the poisoning. The poisoning's real. And probably even Ernest knowing about it might be real. But they're taking the knowing or the suspecting or the wondering and they're turning it into action. And this actually ends up being the culminating scene between the two of them. Where she says even in his confession, he didn't share everything. And he says, no, no, I did. And she asks him, what were you giving me with the insulin? And he lies to her. And that's the moment that she decides to divorce him, right? And the divorce is true. She did divorce him. She stood with him through all of this until he confessed. And then she did divorce him, married another man, just like the movie tells you. All that is true. But do you see how the internal relationships, right? His love, is it love? Is it just manipulation? Is it something complicated in between? For Molly, his love, is it love? Is it fear? Is it just an inability to stand up for himself with William? How all these things are dramatized, right? By externalizing the internal feelings, by creating fictions around the truth, by creating fictions that are intended to amplify the truth. With your own writing, once again, I can't tell you what is true and what is not true. But I can tell you, if you write something that's not true for you, you will regret it. Because someday it's going to be on the screen. And it's going to be the story. And there have been some critics who are critical of Killers of the Flower Moon for its departure from the truth. And then there have been others, myself included, who think that the choices they made even though they took away from some of the entertainment value, actually tell the bigger story of what happened to the Osage, what happened to the native people of this country, that story of betrayal in the name of love, that relationship, that pure horror of a man who still believes he loves his wife even after he has taken everything from her right? That those choices are actually the choices that tell that story in the most truthful way. So I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you are getting a lot out of it and you want to 
continue to work with us, come study with me. You can join me free every Thursday night for Thursday Night Rights, not to mention wonderful online master classes, foundation classes, and even a ProTrack mentorship program that will pair you with a professional writer who will mentor you for the tiniest fraction of the cost of grad school. You can find all this on my website, writeyourscreenplay.com.